1: Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and hex stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Prabhita Saha. And I'm Corinne Iozio. Corinne, you're here, and that can only mean one thing.
2: It is digital edition o'clock. Almost quite literally, the spring (laughs) issue went live this morning, mere hours, minutes, seconds ago, depending on when you're listening to this and when you might have gone to PopSci.com and been like, oh, there's an issue. It's called messy. I'm messy. My life's messy. Maybe my desk is messy. I wonder what this is all about. Um, And that's what we're here to talk about. Um, Lots of really fantastic stories in there about... Um, what I call problem-tunities, <laughs> what we can learn by staring at the messes we make and the good things that we can make out of them.
1: Yes. Listeners, for those of you who have forgotten or have not yet learned, the weirdest thing I learned this week is a podcast brought to you by Popular Science, which is also a magazine. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> yeah, and the messy issue is super fun. I mean, I love every issue. Um Karen Parbita and I are all extremely involved in creating these quarterly magazines. And so each one holds a special place in all of our hearts. But um, messy it's been a long time coming. It's a theme. <laughs> it's a theme we've wanted to do for a while. Yes, and
2: it is gone. This is now actually the story that I'm going to talk about is probably one of the reasons that we refused to let this issue go. Yes, this theme, um, the th- and I'm really excited to talk about
1: it. <laughs> to pull back the curtain, messy was originally going to be an issue in early 2020. It was going to be called Oops, and we yes. thought, maybe it's not so good to have a playful issue about oopses <laughs> at this time. But messes still exist, and they still need to be cleaned up, and that's what this issue is about. So, on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by offering up a little tease that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, scrubbing our kitchens, and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Corinne, why don't you start with your tease?
2: I want to talk about why marine biologists are really, really, really into a very particular kitchen scrubber.
1: It's <laughs> so one of my favorite stories in the magazine. It's also, I, I, we'll, we'll get into it, but it's very pretty in the magazine. So if you're going to access the digital edition, which you can do on Apple News Plus or Zinio, go to PopSci.com to figure out how... Tuffy is definitely, alone, makes it worthwhile. It's like a 90s Polly pocket fever dream, that art. I love it. (laughs) It's tremendous. We'll talk about it. Uh, My tease um, is that I want to talk about uh, pooping in space and how it used to be like a really big problem. And it's still... Kind of a problem. Um, more complicated than pooping on Earth, for sure. I guess that's all I'll say. That's my tease. <laughs> I can't imagine
3: I think, pooping on Earth is already so complicated. I,
1: that's, that's the problem I started out this journey with. I was. Re- I, we'll get into it more, but... Sure. Pooping's not always easy, no matter where you are. Uh, Pribita, what's your tease?
3: Uh, I'm going to tell a story about why... Accidental chocolate rivers are public hazards. Oh. And when Ooh. I mean chocolate, I mean real chocolate, not... Right. Poop. No, that's good. Yeah.
1: Thank you for... Yes, yeah, that's so fair. Why I? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, why don't we start... Well, hmm. I'm trying to think. What do we want to start with? I feel like the chocolate one is... Uh, not I so. want to
2: separate the chocolate and the poop if right. we can.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Why don't <laughs> I get? Well, how quickly do we want to gross people out for real, though? Let's Mine is start not, with the definitely chocolate. not gross, and yeah, it's also we'll pretty Let's ease short. into it. Let's start with the chocolate. Start with something delicious. <laughs> All
3: right. Well, this story starts in a very humble German town, uh, and. Rachel, I was thinking that I should have run some of these German words by you and your spouse, Oliver, but alas, I did not. So sorry to all the um, <laughs> German files out there. I'm going to butcher this, but uh, the town is called West Owner. Uh It is pretty much off the map, um, kind of on the northwest end of Germany. Uh, I think the closest big city would probably be Ham. And the sad thing is, if you look up Westoner, uh, both in news and images, all the articles link to one specific incident. And it happened in December of 2018. Uh, it was a few weeks before Christmas at the Drymeister chocolate factory. Uh, so I particularly didn't recognize Drymeister. I think it's really just a kind of German specialty chocolate company. I don't think you can buy it here in the U.S., but their products look delightful. They make these beautiful, like, gold-wrapped chocolate discs. look far better than the trash M&Ms I eat on the daily. <laughs> uh, but they have a small little factory in Westoner, and um, this a couple weeks before Christmas – they had a valve malfunction in one of their storage tankers. And that meant all the liquid chocolate that was being held in this tanker, which was not too much because it was a small factory, maybe about like 2,000 pounds a ton. uh, Oh, is that all? (laughs) (laughs) I imagine a river to be... Go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, uh, I was not going to say anything of import. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean I'm not saying that like that's
2: not a lot and I'm not saying that it's not you know in the grand scale of chocolate production probably a small batch like if if we're talking about like an explosion at the Hershey factory it's different but like 2000 pounds of chocolate is a lot
3: yeah it's still a lot and especially if it's a small like family run company that was probably a big chunk of their uh of their chocolate material Uh, Well, anyway, so it leaked out of the tank and went right into the streets of Westoner. And the thing about chocolate is that uh, it's a very um, tricky chemical process to both harden it and melt it. And Westoner, you know, its climate is pretty similar to us here in New York and New Jersey. In December, it would have been 20, 30 degrees Fahrenheit, especially at night. So as soon as that chocolate hit the street, it hardened, and it was just like two inches of chocolate shell lining the streets of this little German town. Wow. So as I can imagine the children in town just being like over the moon about this, but <laughs> the adults, not so much. Um basically the entire firefighting crew for the town and volunteers from neighboring towns had to come out and tackle this chocolate infrastructure calamity. (laughs) And uh, they had to basically just take out shovels and, like, hack away at the chocolate until they could, like, peel off the pieces from the street. Uh, They also took blowtorches to it and just, like, burned it to a char. So... It ended up being a lot bigger of a mess than than uh, expected, and all the whi- all the whimsical headlines just like probably didn't capture how annoying of an incident this was. <laughs> um, but the cutest thing to me was uh, the Drymeister uh, factory manager. The one quote that all the news stories had from him was like, "Well, at least it didn't happen on Christmas because that would have been a real crisis." Uh, which is um yeah, that's that's definitely a silver lining <laughs> if you want to see it <laughs> yeah. that way.
2: Um and just looking at the picture of it, which Prabita shared with me and Rachel yesterday, it looks almost just like road surface, the way that it just goes smooth and hard, like on top of the asphalt. It's just I looking at it, you're like, yeah, that really looks like a paint.
1: <laughs> yeah it's also a second like, road but it's I, chocolate you know I I could not make chocolate harden that well if I tried like <laughs> I've watched Bon Appetit test kitchen I know how difficult it is to make chocolate do what you want it to do or even
2: just trying to handle chocolate in an everyday kitchen scenario and knowing what an unbelievable mess you make even if you're really good at it which I am not
1: it's a disaster. One time I was making ganache at a friend's house and I accidentally <laughs> dropped the bowl. It was real. Oh, No. <laughs> <laughs> it was our it was it was a kind of just a, a to scale recreation of what happened here. It was pretty uh, pretty mortifying <laughs> for me. Just but get out with um, the garden we, and trowels and <laughs> we didn't need the fire department. We just needed my friend Claudia's dad. I'll clean up their beautiful home. So.
3: Uh yeah. And the reason chocolate is so so this process is called tempering, getting chocolate. Well, the thing is when you're cooking with chocolate, you have to heat it or cool it to multiple temperatures to get it to the texture and consistency that you want. And the reason for this is uh cocoa fat. Um so the problem with cocoa fat is that it's like very uh, complex structurally so when it um, when it gets cold and when it crystallizes uh, it can take any of six different shapes uh, which is actually really interesting and fun to read about and there's a lot of um, cool like molecular chemistry research on this so I definitely encourage readers to do that um, but there's one particular crystal that uh, like Uh, culinary artists really go for or even people just making ganache at home Um, and that is called uh, form five or beta prime which is just such a (laughs) funny name for a chocolate crystal Um, but that is the crystal that gives like that smooth uh smooth shiny finish that you see in like a good bar of chocolate um but to get there, you really have to, like, you can't heat your chocolate too fast, which is pretty much what I always do. And it just <laughs> like, you once you do that, like, you can't put liquid chocolate in things. It just, like, gets really, really gross. Um, but then you also can't cool it too fast. Like, it's a very fine, like, range of temperature that you need. Um, and it's not that high either. I think it's, like, something between, like, room temperature or even higher than room temperature like like high 80s to like low 90s that you need to start with and then you raise the temperature from there um so yeah not a process that I have finessed that is for sure but yeah there's I did I was curious to see how many chocolate leaks there have been worldwide uh I do not have a hard stat for you but just a month after the um, Westowner incident, there was another chocolate spill in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, this was not from The a chocolate capital
2: of the Southwest, <laughs> clearly.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't actually know. So it, it came from a tanker truck. I don't know where the truck was coming from or where it was going, but it was holding liquid chocolate again, uh, heated to a precise 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And the truck got, you know, the driver just got into an accident and the tanker flipped over. Uh, luckily, they were okay. Um, and I think about, like, 4,000 pounds of chocolate ended up on this highway in Flagstaff, Arizona. And um, this time, it because it's Arizona, it actually did not harden. It was just, like, kind of sludge um, that uh, – the The local like public safety teams had to clean up, um, and it seems like they they actually had a pretty good time with it. There are some there's some good tweets from the um, local Flagstaff officials uh, where you know they're just grinning through these messes of chocolate um, in while wearing hazmat gear. So
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: something I would yeah, I volunteer for is cleaning up chocolate off an interstate.
2: I just would worry that it would turn me off of chocolate, right? Even just the word like, oh, it didn't harden. It was just sludge. My insides went,
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, chocolate sludge. I mean, again, like comes back to how much we should appreciate tempering chocolate because the texture of the chocolate we eat and love is because of that, you know. Yeah. beautiful cooking. I wonder what the stage pressing.
2: is. I wonder what the stage is when it's like the chocolate's a little bit too old and it sort of gets that dusty sheen on the bottom yeah. of it. I I don't want that one. But I'll <laughs> eat it anyway. <laughs> I
1: uh when I was a teenager, I I talked my parents into getting a um a little like tabletop chocolate fountain for special occasions. And um, the thing is with those, you need to use candy melts because there needs to be – it needs to be a pretty oily chocolate concoction for it to move smoothly through that little – it's basically just like it – it has like a little spiral uh, spitting in a tube so that it like, you know, creates um, – a lift, lift and that it spills out from the top but um we had a lot of misadventures with that chocolate fountain because <laughs> the texture is so temperamental um and if the chocolate was not exactly liquid but viscous enough it would just like create these very unappetizing like little like globs of chocolate oh, like God like kind of erupting (laughs) from it so anyway um that definitely it is possible to have an unappetizing chocolate fountain fun fact um so i I can definitely imagine being deeply turned off of chocolate by having to shovel a bunch of sludge mixed with asphalt (laughs) yeah i
2: i sort of personally referenced the summer that i worked at an ice cream shop Mm. and then it really ruined it for quite some time. It just gets everywhere.
1: Yeah. But luckily, currently the three of us all enjoy a career uh where we can just enjoy chocolate recreationally. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Privilege. Um yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh
3: speaking of people who don't <laughs> enjoy Uh-oh. chocolate. Um of course My reading, reading ex- about
1: chocolate retrospect. What biggest was red flag. As in my worst ex, hated chocolate. In retrospect, <laughs> biggest red flag. Don't trust people who don't like chocolate. Bad uh, sign. Well, Damage I don't people. know
3: if you're... I doubt your ex was the actor who played Augustus in the original trilogy, <laughs> the Chocolate <laughs>
1: Factory. No, but honestly, like, some similarities, for sure.
3: <laughs> but I was, I was... After reading about these uh, two separate chocolate accidents. I was reading um I was curious what that chocolate river like on the film set was actually made of. And uh I think they definitely pushed some like child um safety laws there because I've heard uh, that about
1: I, that movie in general.
3: <laughs> I yeah, I think so. Um we we should do an investigation on that, but uh, I guess the river was just a giant like trough that they dug out um, and filled with like kind of like tainted water. Uh, So definitely not chocolate. It was just dirty water. And they actually put this uh, young actor uh, in it. Um, He had to swim around. He had to like be filled like he was stuck in a pipe that was filled up to his head with water and I guess, like, the cast and crew would just also dump trash in this river, like coffee grounds and stuff, Aww. because it was already dirty. And they just, like, never cleaned it and made him, like, you know, have his little um, crisis, chocolate factory Ugh, crisis That's nasty. In it. So that's, um, yeah, he he seems, he's done a few interviews about it, and he seems traumatized by, by all that. Yes. Sympathy Whoa. for Augustus. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more facts.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard
1: I'm going to talk about some some scrubbing. I'm going to talk about some scrubbing, yes. Um, this story,
2: as we said before, is one of the reasons that we were so, so into bringing back the oops becomes messy issue. Um, this is written by one of our regular PopSci feature contributors, a fellow named Ryan Bradley, who just brings us the most charming stories that are deeply scientific that you just can't get anywhere else it's just like he i don't know where he finds this stuff but it's incredible here we go (laughs) so there's a very unusual assembly line process that happens in a lab at the university of california at santa barbara specifically at their marine science institute And in this lab, grad students stand at their lab benches, and they've got in front of them these sort of spherical, globular, orangish, yellowish things that are literally covered in crud. And what these grad students do is they take these spherish shaped things and they unspool them. And when they unspool them, they sort of become like a weird plastic fishnet stocking. And it's covered in gunk. So they take this stocking and they put it over a lab tray and they scrape the gunk off. And then they rinse the stocking, they hang it dry, and then they ball it back up again and they zip tie it together to another one. And then it heads back out into the ocean to get more gunk. Now, the gunk in question on these little tufted, floofy, cushy ball things is plankton. And specifically, their larvae from mussels, which settle on their surface during weeks that they're spent like out at sea, bolted to rocks on the ocean floor. Now, this odd procedure over time has become really central to researching ocean plankton, specifically over the last couple decades. So plankton collectively are the small organisms that get carried around in the tides and on currents, right? They're the ocean life that aren't fish, right? They don't really swim on their own, and they settle on things and they move with the tides and the larvae of mussels and barnacles are part of the animal type of plankton, the zooplankton and these critters are you know often really are a really good food source for ocean dwellers, right? Like krill is a type of plankton, and krill is, as we know, is what baleen whales eat. They're also really crucial because they're a big source of oceanic data for marine scientists, because plankton are very sensitive creatures. So even the smallest changes in Ocean or water temperature, acidity, salinity, whatever nutrients are floating around in the water, have a massive impact on their populations. And so we see shifts in these balances manifest in various ways. Probably the one that we're most used to in our current climactic situation um, would be the red tides, right? The algae blooms. like Those are the plankton signaling that something is very, very wrong here. So the tricky thing about all of this is that in order to really study these shifts and understand the relationships between the various types of plankton and the health of the oceans and our other waterways, is you have to count them. And they're like really small, and you need to get a lot of them to get a good sample. So this was the problem that was really bugging a marine biologist at Oregon State University named Bruce Menge. And it was really bugging him in the late 80s. He needed a way to gather really big samples of both barnacle and mussel larvae so he could count them. Barnacles were kind of the easy part. You know, we've all seen enough like pirate ship movies to know that these things really just collect en masse on like slick surfaces like boat hulls. So he was able to create substrates like a medium to collect barnacle larvae out of boat decking. That was really super easy. Muscle larva, though, was really, really tricky because what they naturally settle on are these like fibrous strands of green algae that kind of look like koosh balls, or they grab onto, you know, the beards of other muscles and they kind of nestle on top of one another. So what he was looking for was some sort of standardized surface, right? Like what's the boat decking of muscle larva that he could attach and that would reliably be able to replicate that type of same collection surface again and again and again right he was looking for something that he could control so aren't he was we all out, <laughs> aren't we all i just want i just want to feel like i'm in control of just one something. thing one thing just anything <laughs> um but in this instance like yeah, it isn't it is a very philosophical notion out of control but it is also like fundamental to doing good science right so he was wandering around a grocery store, and he was in the kitchen supplies and cleaning aisle, and he saw this reddish, orangish, yellowish, fibrous sponge thing, and it was woven, and it was tufted. It was called the Tuffy. So he thought, hmm, this might work. So he bought a few, and he screwed them to some rocks in the ocean, and kept checking on them. And over time, over a few weeks, the larva began to settle. And so he bought more. And then he bought more. And it kept working. And it became widespread. Before too long, this became the way for marine biologists to collect these samples and do their population studies. Dozens of studies over the intervening decades relied on this kitchen sponge. Marine biologists were buying them by the crate. They could not get enough. And it wasn't just that it worked in the Pacific Northwest where MENGE was. It worked, you know, there's studies that were done off the coasts of New Zealand, off the coasts of Chile and the Atlantic and the Pacific. This was just, they were so into it it was perfect it was what they had never known that they always needed um the thing about the tuffy is that whether or not it's actually good at its primary function is a matter of a little bit of debate (laughs) some people really think it's the absolute perfect thing for scrubbing your cast iron without you know scrubbing your nice oil-slicked nonstick coating off of it. But just generally, as a kitchen scrubber, like people were sort of like, meh to this is not great. So that sort of helps explain what happened next, which is the Clorox company, who's not the original owners of the Tuffy sponge, but became its producers through acquisition, uh, discontinued it? And they replaced it with a similar but totally not quite exactly the same sponge with a different weave, a different color. There were other changes. Suffice it to say, it was just wrong. (laughs) And uh, folks, Tuffy devotees, people who loved it for their cast iron scouring, but more notably, marine biologists started just stockpiling these things. They had And they were buying them on eBay for many, many, many times their grocery store price as precious sponges. And researchers like Jennifer Cassell, whose lab at UC Davis is now doing this unfurling and refurling and cleaning and scraping and bundling procedure with the toughies, uh, tried a bunch of alternatives and she thought about trying some others, but then she stopped herself because she realized that if she changed their collection medium after all this time, after all these studies, that's a problem, right? It's not just because she loved the Tuffy. It was because all of a sudden she had created a new variable that would really, really bork their data. And she was already okay with the reusing thing because when she took a step back and ryan goes into this in the story when she took a step back and thought about it the fact of like marine scientists specifically making plastic waste just didn't really feel super good Mm. so the fact that like they were using toughies initially and then discarding them just gave her the icks. sure so good on her for instituting the reuse process before she absolutely had to. Uh, but yeah, just generally, it was like not good. You know, so they're continuing to do that. Um, Bruce Menge, meanwhile, instead of trying to make use of toughies that he that are currently in the field, he decided that he was going to look back at patterns in the data that he gathered in the years that he did have toughies out in the field to really look back at what the plankton could be telling us right his he was very curious, Like, so we know that the plankton express what's happening in the oceans right now right at that given at a given moment but he wonders and he seems that he's probably right in a lot of ways that the plankton are actually bellwethers for what's going on in the ecosystem that we can't even see yet right because if we remember that they don't move of their own volition they move with the currents right they're circulating through the system So any shifts that they're seeing, even if they're subtle, might be indicators of some nasty stuff about to come down the line, right? Like ocean heat waves, which are now becoming more and more common. Um, So smaller, even rapid changes in ocean temperatures or acidity, like before they happen, like looking at old data gathered with the toughies can help us really understand these things. And these are just marine biology, despite the fact that the Tuffy doesn't exist, right, is very much not done with it. Not like at all. So that's, that's the Tuffy, right? And the Tuffy is, is so charming. And it's a, it's a delightful little object when you see it in the magazine. It's colorful and it's vibrant and it looks like a piece of coral. I totally get it. Like muscle larvae i see you i understand it's a very attractive sponge as such a thing can be but it's also not the only example of like scientists really truly relying on something that was not intended for them at all which is a very as we know from the Tuffy, a pretty dangerous business to get into um a couple of my favorites i'm glad you asked um The Victoria's Secret Amber Romance scent is very popular (laughs) (laughs) because it is evidently an extremely good insect repellent.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
2: (laughs) I can't remember that one. I remember Dream Angels. I have no idea what Amber Romance
1: smells like. Yeah, I know. Um, I have no idea. That must make fieldwork more interesting, especially because, like, I don't know, I feel like you're pretty – you're kind of at your stinkiest uh doing field work because of like the manual uh labor of being out there and also generally like not a not a situation where you can shower as much as you usually do. So I feel like that plus a Victoria's Secret perfume must um kind of be ne- I, I would I don't think that smells good, probably. <laughs> no, no. And the
2: thing is I you know, not to like be disparaging against Sense that are marketed towards teens and tweens who frequent malls. But, you know, I'd imagine I probably don't like Amber Romance to begin with. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I've also had experiences of people like opening those very pungent, hand sanitizers from bath and body works and then it just creates this mutant funk so i hear exactly what you're saying
3: was it the um, scent in itself or did they mix it with other things for the repellent as
2: far as i know it's just the scent itself <laughs> and who knows maybe they did figure it out by accident right like maybe it was somebody taking like a french shower when they were out doing field work just like spritzing on some stuff to make it better and they went wait i'm not getting bitten cool <laughs> Uh, or the bugs are so repulsed by the combination of body odor and amber <laughs> romance. um yeah but and you see other things like sifting bones with tea strainers or um there's a certain type of waterproof paper that Uh, Cassell's lab used for note-taking that was made by Xerox and then Xerox changed the paper and she was like, oh, crap. Because they just like, it's not that research ground to a halt, but they like stopped being able to like make notes the way that they thought they, the way that they needed to because like they needed their waterproof paper. Um, But it's just, it's interesting thing to think about that you put science sort of in the crosshairs of the whims of like consumer desire. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Um and it's hard to, to change something once you've started using it. Uh and there are whole economic theories about this that we go into in the piece, but we do not have to go into right now because um I will not do them justice. Um uh, but
3: yeah, at the end of the day, we always have the toughie. <laughs> I wanna be a toughie. I just wanna catch Plankton and waves and yeah, let that be my sounds-
1: sounds
2: chill it sounds like a pretty Reason nice life live. until they like stretch you out and start scraping things off of oh. you okay no, yeah, that's i'll probably pretty out nice before too.
1: That. i like i it's like what i it's what i go to like korean spas for so truth basically what truth I, fair what happens there so it's um, a good life for a toughie yeah <laughs> all right we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more messy fact
0: Okay, we're back.
1: And um, I'm going to talk about some space poop. Um, I recently, I mean, I've always been interested in um, stories about poop. Um, I don't know why. I think when I was working at the Washington Post, I realized uh, people would get really... (laughs) really up in arms about uh such a newspaper of record uh having a story about poop science and um so that just encouraged me to write about it even more um and now here i am uh some years later uh still writing about poops so recently some listeners uh, may have uh scene trailers or even uh the movie itself uh this movie came out called moonfall uh it's a very silly um action adventure movie involving the moon coming to us <laughs> it's um it's a real romp uh definitely recommend it if you like um you know films that are not um objectively like good, shall we say, but uh, it's a lot of, a lot of fun. <laughs> and um, Mika McKinnon, who's a geologist and disaster researcher who does science consulting for film and TV, which is just such a cool side hustle, um, she reached out to me being like, you know, I'm doing the press trunket for this. And I'm really concerned that maybe no one's going to ask me about um, the fact that one of the characters, when he finds out unexpectedly that he's going into space, says he has irritable bowel syndrome. And I was like, Mika, you're right. I am the person for that story. I absolutely want to talk to you and NASA about um, how you handle having IBS or just any poop problems in space. Um, Because I was aware that pooping in space is kind of an ordeal. Um, You know, even today – with uh, modern technology, uh, it is done with the assistance of um, vacuum pressure. Because the thing is that for uh, for most of us, particularly if we are um, relatively able-bodied, uh, going to the bathroom, while it may not always be pleasant, uh, is like a is pretty straightforward. Like the 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 stuff comes out of you, and gravity takes it into the toilet, right? Um, Bless gravity. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, gravity. Uh, The thing is, there's no gravity on the International Space Station, Um, just to name one example of a place you might be in space. And um, so even with modern technology, like going to the bathroom on the ISS involves like a vacuum funnel (laughs) that you put on your person so that it can draw away um, the stuff that gravity usually um, takes care of plunking into the toilet for us. So I knew that and I knew that even that was like a a big advance and that um, historically things have been more difficult. For example, um, on the Apollo 10 transcripts, which... Uh, I first I read for the first time because I was pre-writing an obituary for a very famous astronaut. It's a very um a very awkward uh rite of passage if you work at a big newspaper, they have you um write up an obituary for someone who is not sick, not dead, just just there's some concern that they might croak uh sometime in the next 5 years. Um and so I had to call up people and be like um Obviously, this will never run. This person you love very much will live forever. But supposing they died, what what would you want me to say about them? <laughs> and um, so I was reading some Apollo transcripts, and uh, in Apollo 10... You will find, and I'm looking at this right now, you can see it online. I will link to it on popside.com slash weird because everything is recorded. Um, there are references to a floating turd. And in fact, several floating turds because uh, on Apollo 10, um, poops escaped. There were free floating poops, um, multiple instances of that. And um, so I'll just read some choice quotes. But again, you can you can examine this for yourself. um, See the primary documentation. Uh, Someone says, have you got the turd? And someone else says, you got a big mess. People are mad at you. And I don't blame them. I don't care. (laughs) Dad gum, I still think it's a little funny. (laughs) First crap around the sun. (laughs) <laughs> the first free crap in space. I'm skipping around just to be clear. These are multiple. Did they did they redact
3: the names? Speaking. What did they redact the names?
1: Um, so they're labeled by um like their role oh, uh, on the crew. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> so, so it's you, figure outable. You see who is who, but that, then also like this is a transcript from a recording. Uh, from like the 60s so I think there are in a couple instances it's maybe a little dubious who was actually talking but um, you can you can suss it out if you so choose I am just not outing anyone at this moment Um, I was just gonna
2: say that I very much am charmed and appreciate the like okay for public consumption earnest g-rated swearing (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, they do occasionally really swear, but they clearly, given the era and um, the military background of everyone involved, they clearly, like, make an effort to to do more dadgum and darn it <laughs> than anything else. <laughs> um, there's that. Then later, <laughs> in the middle, they're talking about, you know, being in space. They're doing very serious things. Uh, oh, who did it? Who did what? What? Who did it? Where did that come from? Give me a napkin quick. There's a turd floating through the air. I didn't do it. It ain't one of mine. I don't think it's one of mine. Mine was a little more sticky than that. Throw that away. (laughs) God almighty. Nothing. That's enough for me. Nice going there. No more turns are going to fit in there. (laughs) So that's them dealing with the waste compartment. Um, uh, So...
3: (laughs) How is this not a movie or a video game at this
1: point? Uh it should yeah. have been one, absolutely. <laughs> a
2: video game though. Oh my
1: god. And then I again, one more time later on in the transcript, again when they're trying to deal with being in space, suddenly <laughs> they're they're in the middle of talking to like mission control and then they're like, "Here's another goddamn turd." <laughs> What's the <laughs> matter with you guys? <laughs> Someone says, well, babe, if it was me, I sure would know I was shitting on the floor. (laughs) It was just floating around. And they're talking about the consistency. um, And they're just like, no one's owning up to the poop. Um, So anyway, (laughs) um, I was talking to uh, Joseph Schmidt, who's a a flight surgeon um, at NASA, which basically means like he is the physician for astronauts. And um, he's been assigned to several space missions. So like, it's his job to make sure people are generally healthy and that they're like prepared for any health problems they might face while in space. Um, And then he just kind of works with like coaching them through the process of acclimating all of that. Um, and so he and I were chatting about the turn transcripts. He was like, yeah, you might, yeah, you know, there's actually like a, there, there was a, a poop incident. And I'm like, I know, man, I've read the Apollo 10 transcripts. I'm not, it's not my first space poop rodeo. Um, and here's the thing, um, is that, uh, despite the indignation of the astronauts being like, how is this possible? Who who done it? Um, it was actually like very understandable uh, for this to occur because the way that astronauts pooped during the Apollo missions was that they had these baggies that had like sticky stuff around the edge, so you literally stuck the baggie to your butt, and then. <laughs> they had the issue of like there was no gravity to make stuff come away. So they added like an extra little like tab in the plastic so that you could manually uh, manipulate things and get everything down into the bag. And then you would seal it and it would go into that compartment that they were talking about, like not being able to hold more poop. And so if a sticky bag came undone either while you were doing your business or after you had tried to um, dispose of it, then it would just be freeborn. It would be the first free poop in space, as they (laughs) said. Um, So this probably like happened, um, you know, hopefully not every Apollo mission, but like it was definitely on the list of of things that could go wrong, high on the list, I would say. Um, These days there are like the Soyuz does have like a little um suction toilet but it is like uh as as unpleasant as the experience sounds on the ISS it is like a smaller facility when you're you know launching up so um they do offer um an enema before launching um and I wasn't told how frequently astronauts take them up on that, but I would say probably most do because you really just like you want to avoid needing to go to the bathroom. Um, And in fact, it's a problem where the position you're in uh, when you're launching, where kind of like your feet are above your heart you get a lot of fluid pooling, which um, makes your kidneys, you know, get to work and that makes you need to pee. And so a lot of people um, like they don't want to be hydrating because they don't want to have to pee so much when they're uh, in transit. Um, And, you know, flight surgeons like Joe really have to like fight against that because you don't want people getting woozy and dehydrated on their way to freaking space but you are basically peeing into like a diaper they call them like maximum absorbency garments which is a very nice way of saying um a diaper and uh that is an improvement over like the pee condoms that used to be standard um it's what it sounds like and you peed into it And once they uh, had to kind of figure out absorbent garments as an option for people who do not have penises, everyone was like, okay, but that's better than wearing um, a rubber P-tube the whole time. (laughs) So circling back to my initial inspiration, as uh, a woman of a certain ethnic background, I have... Uh, tummy problems. Um, And I have always wondered, well, now I wonder what happens uh, if you have an upset tummy in space. And the thing is that you're sharing this tiny vacuum powered toilet with like anywhere from six to like a dozen-ish people. And everything is really rigidly scheduled because everything has to be on the space station. Like, Um, you just, there's no room for lollygagging about. And so, you know, my thinking was like, what if you don't, um, what if your business doesn't happen on schedule? Uh, what if your business happens frequently and uncomfortably? Um, and the takeaway is that like, while everything is scheduled, uh, there is like kind of gray space. And you can always choose to hurry up a task so that you have more free time to use the bathroom. So the the answer is kind of if you need to use the bathroom a lot, if that's something you know about yourself. Um, you just need to learn to like work more efficiently so that no one will miss you while you go off to the ISS toilet. Um, Of course, you still need to negotiate uh, the use of that toilet with the people you are uh, stuck in orbit with. Um, So Joe from NASA did tell me that like, everybody has trouble adjusting. So like, the whole protocol for when you first go to space and every time you go back involves a lot of like, first of all, coaching on what it's going to be like to use the toilet and also like a diet designed to help keep you regular. They're really obviously paying attention to all of your vital signs. So to me, the takeaway was kind of like it's almost simpler if you have an existing issue that you're aware of because then they can work really hard to like mitigate your symptoms as much as humanly possible while you're on the ground and a lot of people who have never had an issue will like get up into space and be like puking or having some other issue for several days and so kind of like the fewer surprises (laughs) there are the better um also kind of my takeaway uh in this chat with the NASA flight surgeon was like Maybe everybody with IBS should become an astronaut so that they get this much medical attention. Maybe all of their problems would go away. Um, maybe that's how a healthcare should work. But anyway, um, I learned a lot about pooping in space. And I will link to the full story um, in the article for this episode on popside.com slash weird. Um, but obviously the highlight was, uh, the free floating turd in, on Apollo 10, uh, and everything else is just set dressing. And I know that, but hopefully you learned something.
2: <laughs> oh, I, I just, I have so many thoughts. Like we were, I, when we were talking about the enemas, all I was thinking was like your body's stress response, right? Like when you have an adrenaline surge, right? Poop in your pants is like literally just a thing that happens.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Right? So I couldn't
2: imagine saying no to the enema. Yeah. No. That.
1: Like I think you like, look, all things considered, you want an empty tank when you set out for space. Word. That's my advice to anyone uh about to head up to ISS for the first time. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, um, I think like, you know, it's so interesting to think about um, the way NASA and other space agencies troubleshoot on ISS because like, I mean, talking to uh, this flight surgeon, he was like, I can't just like write a prescription and have them send it up like Yes, there are cargo deliveries, but they are not frequent and space is at a premium. You know, it takes a lot of energy to send stuff up into space. So, um, again, it's like it's actually kind of better if it's like we know you have this issue and like we have all these months to get to know your body on Earth and like figure out what medications really help. And then you go up with all that stuff. And um, if someone has a problem that has not been anticipated – uh, it's, you know, I mean, that's where you get the, like Apollo 13 scene where they're like taping the air filters onto the wrong shaped hole. You imagine that, but a bunch of doctors try to figure out how to get you to stop pooping. Um, but anyway, it, it, they, uh, they're prepared for many eventualities. Um, one thing that Joe said that I, I really liked was that, Um, He learned in his medical training that people who are quote unquote normal just haven't been evaluated closely enough and that like, you know, there is no normal human. Everybody has some issue or another, which I think is um, very true and a little bit poignant and also, uh, you know, definitely a good philosophy for a NASA flight surgeon to have because they really have to um, like imagine so many ways that things could go wrong with your body and try to prep for them. So all of that is to say, if you dream of going to the stars and you're anxious because you have IBS, I got news for you. Keep dreaming big, kid, because it's, it's in reach. Beautiful.
3: <laughs> but that does make me think that as more... Everyday people go into space like you still go through some you go through many health checks and um, like physical training, but they're just going to have to, you know, be more open to like people with different conditions like going Mm -hmm. up there. And totally. they'll have to. And when I say they, I don't just mean NASA, but like some of these commercial space companies, they're going to have to troubleshoot like technologies and medications and such that are going to help people, um, yeah. you know, make that couple hour ride. So that's kind of exciting. It's like when. Yeah. Like women started going to space, they had to like change up a lot of things
2: about spacesuits and find
1: something other than a pee condom. There There you go. (laughs) But it's also,
2: it's like really nice to think about how much space agencies and space flight and the people who are screening people who go into space, right? How far we've evolved since the Mercury astronauts who were all held up as these like peak perfect specimens of everything. And these are like absolutely the this is what normal is. This is the epitome. And now right. we're just like, that's
1: what the st- the standards were based on, those exactly. hardy white men. And you know mm-hmm. what? They still pooped their pants in space. <laughs> they still did that. And, they, and one of the Mercury astronauts
2: pissed in his suit on the launch pad, yep. right? It's just yep. like, this
1: is what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think, um, you know, one thing that we, we talked about, um, that I talked about with the NASA flight surgeon was that there is also, it's like, you know, there are, if you have a health problem that they don't feel confident about being able to manage in space, you know, that that may disqualify you. And, you know, they, I don't think I would want to be a person without a health problem that couldn't be managed in space and be in space. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. That being said, um, he did say that like, if you're going up to ISS as like you know, like a cultural visitor, you know, which does happen. Like there are definitely people who are not part of the crew who go up or especially back during the shuttle program. That was pretty common. Um, there would be people just kind of along for the ride. And in that instance, the threshold kind of changes because it's just like, are you going to be like at risk uh, of, are you going to be in danger if we send you to space? Cause like an astronaut, they do kind of, they have duties to fulfill, so they want to make sure you're you're going to be able to keep working fairly nominally. Um, but if you're just going to visit, they're like, I mean, you know, as long as you don't mind having to poop that much, that's fine by us, man. Like We'll figure it out, That's how dude. you want to spend your week in space. Go for it. And I think there will be a lot of that with commercial spaceflight. I think, like, you know, there will be a lot of being like, um, we... We haven't made this experience comfortable for you, but you can still do it if you want to. <laughs> everybody poops. Yeah, everybody poops, including in space. Um, hopefully. Oh, yeah, constipation is more of an issue. I didn't even get into that. You got to read about that on popside.com slash weird. So um, anyway, <laughs> what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? <laughs> I'm going to vote for the Chocolate River. Well, not the chocolate river. I'm not saying that learning about Willy Wonka was the weirdest thing I learned this week. I'm saying the the quickly hardening, perfectly tempered chocolate catastrophe uh, is pretty delightful.
2: It truly is. And it's just, again, I think I'm so, and I encourage everybody to look at this and we'll link to it. Like the image is so like, it just looks like blacktop. <laughs> like what happened? Is a chocolate road. I'm also team chocolate road. Like I think the, The space poop was the funniest thing
1: I heard this week. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
3: But the chocolate takes the weird. Yeah. I will have to say Tuffy just because it's so niche and weird and wonderful and unexpected. Um, But also I've been hearing Corinne talk about that story for like a while. So guess
2: what? It might be over. You
3: might not have to hear
2: me talk about it anymore. (laughs) Except that's also a lie.
1: All right. So listeners, definitely check out our latest issue. You can find links to it on popside.com. And uh, if you're an Apple News subscriber, uh, it'll already be in your feed, and you should definitely check it out. Congratulations to Pravita on the most delicious take on the messy theme. Go chocolate.
3: (laughs) Stop listening to this podcast if you don't like chocolate. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Get out.
2: Yeah. But it is, it, is the, it is the perfect mess to revel in. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that's what it's all
1: about. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear... Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popscye.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs, at Popseye.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.